All right, this morning we have a gospel reading, so if you would rise with me. The reading is from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Carrie. Hey, everybody. Hey, before we start uh, this morning, uh, can we be in prayer for um, our brothers and sisters in Texas? Saw some pictures this morning as uh, the sunshine came out and freeways are completely underwater. It is utterly devastating. And so, uh, Lord God, Son of the living God, Jesus Christ, have mercy on the folks that are suffering in Texas. Amen? Amen. Well, the passage that Carrie just read uh, is a really tender and beautiful one where Jesus gets to a point in his life where he asks his friends, his closest friends and followers, hey, by the way, um, who do people say that I am? And then they give an answer. And then, and then he says, well, you guys have been with me for a couple of years. Who do you say that I am? And I think it's, it's interesting um, when we think about that, we can gloss over that and we can just say, well, you know, that was the question that Jesus knew he was always going to ask on that particular day because he knew everything, and I don't think that's true. Um, so we have to ask the question, why did he ask that question then? What was happening in his life and, and in his ministry that was happening so that he asked this really vulnerable question? Well, their answer was this, John the Baptist, they replied, which is sort of weird because he had just died. Others say Elijah, which is sort of weird because he died a long time ago. Others say Jeremiah, really weird because he died as well. All three of those guys were prophets. So in a sense, they were saying, uh, you, Jesus, are a continuation of the story of God. You're somehow a continuation of what's been happening. You're something that God has been saying for years and years and years. And a prophet is navi in the Hebrew. It simply means one who brings. And I heard this definition of a prophet this week. A prophet is one who is willing to bring a message of truth in the midst of being marginalized, persecuted, or even executed. That's what a prophet is. So these disciples were saying, Jesus, you're in that company. You're in the company of people who speak truth, even in the midst of being marginalized, 
persecuted or executed. And this is in the context right before these verses, the Pharisees came to Jesus and apparently demanded that he give a sign that would prove that he was really from God. And he apparently got angry. He said, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left. Mic drop, walks away. We don't have any idea what the sign of Jonah is, but they would have. And really what it is, is this universal truth that almost every human being gets to at one point in time or other in their life where they realize that the only way to find real life is to lose your false self. That's the only way. And so that's the sign of Jonah. Jonah flees from God like any one of us would because God, in essence, told him to tell a group of people that were the sworn enemies of Israel that they could repent and believe. And he was like, no, those are the people who murdered our people. I, I'm, not, I'm not going to them. And he eventually does, and they eventually repent, and God shows mercy on them. And this, the story of Jonah ends with him mad. You ever read that part, like Jonah chapter four? It doesn't end with like him writing a book about the mercy of God, whose mercy never ends. He, he ends up thinking about how mad he is that, you know, these people actually got God's mercy. And so Thomas Merton said this about the sign of Jonah. I find myself traveling toward my destiny in the belly of a paradox that it's only by losing myself that I will eventually find myself. Then Jesus goes on in Matthew 16 to tell his disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And this is after the feeding of the 5,000. This is after the feeding of the 4,000. <laughs> and these disciples, here's their response. He's saying that, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, because we didn't bring any bread. That's their response. Thank you, Joe. One person that got it. Jesus says, honestly, and I'm just, I'm, I'm reading the text. How could you fail to perceive that I wasn't talking about bread? <laughs> Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I love this. He doesn't explain it. He just says it again. Ah! I can imagine him walking away. And then they're like, oh. He's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. What does it mean that a prophet, one who brings the word of God, tells a group of people, beware the teaching of the religious leaders? Now that could bring you some marginalization. Beware. All the people that stand up and talk for God in this community, beware their teaching. They don't speak the truth. Well, that's when Jesus says, by the way, and then they get away to this region called Caesarea Philippi. And he says, you guys, now it's just us. There's no more Pharisees and Sadducees because we left them behind to get a little chance to rest. He, he said, who do the people say that I am? And that's when they say you're a prophet. And then he says, 
well, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him, God's blessing on you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. It was my father in heaven. And I've got something to tell you too. You are Peter, the rock. So this is when he renames Simon. And upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. At which moment, Peter must have been going like, looking around at the other disciples. Notice he didn't say the 12. Well, just literally a couple verses later, Jesus calls, that's where Jesus calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. So Peter's best day is also his worst day up till that point. So what is the church? What are the gates of hell? What are the keys to the kingdom? This story is repeated in the other gospels, but only in Matthew does Jesus relate it to the church. I will build my church. So the church in the Greek is called ekklesia. It occurs 114 times in the New Testament, but this is the first time. Ekklesia. I will build my ecclesia, which means called out ones. I will build my called out ones, my community that are called out from their places in order to do something that I will call them to do. So it's certainly not a building, certainly not just one little group of people that claim to follow God. It is the universal body of Christ. Whoever is called out by Jesus to do the work of Jesus in the world, that's the church. So this passage is about the relationship between Jesus and the church. And the church of Jesus is rooted in the confession of the crucified and risen Christ. That's what the church is rooted in. Not in theology about speaking in tongues, not in theology about baptism, not in our theology about LGBT inclusion, but in the confession of the crucified and risen Christ. That's what the church is rooted in. All those other things we can lift up, we can talk about, we can fight for, or even fight against, but the core of the message of the church of Jesus Christ is this confession of the crucified and risen Christ, the sign of Jonah. Only through death to the false self do we find life. We find ourselves, church, traveling toward our destiny in the belly of a paradox. We follow a person who was marginalized, spit upon, beaten, who stood up for oppressed people and was eventually executed. And we walk around with crosses tattooed on our bodies and hung around our necks because we walk around Traveling toward our destiny in the belly of a paradox. So let's talk about the church, this church that confesses the crucified and risen Christ. Number one, the church is desperately dependent on Jesus as their source of life, hope, and righteousness. That's what the confession of the crucified and risen Christ means. That we have no righteousness, no hope, and no life apart from the person of Jesus who walked around this world saying, I have come 
to bring sight to the blind, to release the captives that are in bondage, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which means ali ali oxen free, you, yes you, even you, are on my side, because I am on your side, especially when those in power, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, say that you're not. When they say you're not, that's a good sign that you're on my side and I'm on your side. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. Amen? That's the power of the church is that we're a pretty motley nasty, unbelieving, hypocritical group of people. Are we not? (laughs) We are not altogether beautiful. But when we are beautiful, in those moments that the light shines out and something hopeful happens, it's because of the risen Christ in us giving hope. That's what I love. Uh, thanks, Jill, for coming and talking to us about Ace. Every time um, a kid who's hungry eats, man, you know what? That's not because you're so generous. The fact that we gave, you know, I mean, I love that we gave backpacks, but the best thing that you've ever done is motivated at least as much by self-promotion than it is about doing good in the world. <laughs> so keep doing good in the world. But just know, we're all mixed bags. So the church is desperately dependent on Jesus as our source of life, hope, and righteousness. And beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees means any time that you rest on your own good motivation or righteousness or, yep, I am killing it at whatever it is that you should be killing it at. Now you, you've, you've put yourself on the side of the scribes and Pharisees, which doesn't mean you walk around and have no confidence and doesn't mean that you roll over yourself, but it means that you say, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> I'm a mixed bag. So number two, the church is called out together, all of us, everywhere, empowered by the Spirit, to embody the gospel to the world. Notice I didn't say to proclaim the gospel, though we do that too. We embody the gospel. So here's an all-play question, church. How is it that we might embody the gospel in the world? See the image of God in everyone. Thanks, Bob. I heard feed the poor back there. Thank you. Love our neighbors. Thanks, Pam. Was that Anthony back there? Boop. Thanks, Anthony. Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. I love that quote. What else? How do we embody the gospel? Love your neighbor. Ooh. Be willing to stop what we're doing. So I got called out this week for being obnoxious. <laughs> Go figure on social media for 
the love. And man, I got mad. I got defensive. I was like, what? Um, and it was me and someone else. And the other, so, and I, I, this was private. It wasn't on anyone's wall. I was being defensive through a message. And uh, then the other person said, hey, man, uh, to, to this person that called us both out, um, why don't we have lunch together? You know, I mean, this stuff goes so much better talking. And I'm like, I am not having lunch with this person who called me out. And then I was like, oh, snap. So um, we're having lunch, and I'm going to learn about what it means to love um, someone that doesn't think like me. And I don't share that, you guys, please. Like, hey, I mean, well, mixed, mixed motivation. I share that in <laughs> I share that in part to prop myself up, certainly. But I also share that because, you guys, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to have conversations with people who you don't agree with. It's hard to live in this climate right now where it's so emotionally charged. It's really hard to embody the gospel. And yet, in these small little ways, that's what we're called to do. And in Psalm 23, when we read that uh, the Lord has prepared before us in the presence of our enemies a what? You know what that table's for? It's not to gloat over your enemies and say, like, man, I got the prime rib. What do you got? It's so that you would no longer be enemies. You'd eat together. Because when you eat together and talk, you realize, oh, you're a human being too. Oh, you struggle with some of the things, same things I do. Oh, we really, now it's, it's hard to make a caricature of each other when you're across the table from each other. You can still do it, but it's a lot harder. So how do we embody the gospel? Sometimes it means being willing to sit across the table with people who we don't agree with. Now, that just sounds like Thanksgiving to most of you. <laughs> ah. um, maybe it is Thanksgiving. May we embody the gospel around our tables. May we embody the gospel on social media. Amen? And let me, there is a, like, one thing to watch on social media, I, I say this um, by um, personal failure, is um, watch the insufferable um, self-righteousness that, that you're tempted to have on, so, on social media. Um, and I, I, let's, let's just agree that embodying the gospel is not being the first to have a hot take on social media when you're angry about something. Be angry about something, um, but let's, let's move beyond that. Amen, Church of Jesus Christ? Number three, the church is in the, in the context of a conflict. The gates of hell won't overpower it. So like, we all have the picture right now, right, of these gates flying through the air and crashing into something. But that's not what the gates don't move. 
Gates are stationary. <laughs> gates protect something. So when we read the gates of hell won't stand up against the message and person of Jesus, that means in some ways Jesus is crashing against these gates and breaking them down. And the gates, I believe, now and then, is the systemic oppression that keeps people um, down from religious leaders. So how is it that the church embodies the gospel? Jesus tells stories about it's like a little mustard seed. You ever seen a mustard seed? It's, it's just a little speck of, of salt, one grain of salt. It's about the size of a mustard seed. But apparently when it gets uh, planted or scattered, it can, it can go absolutely crazy. It, just, it spreads very slowly, invisibly, and then it takes over. That's how the gospel is embodied. We do these small things, small acts of great love, uh, mixed motivation, even as it is. And after time, these invisible, quiet people deciding to do small acts of great love, it, the message of Jesus, the body of Christ, spreads like crazy. It's like a treasure hidden in a field that someone finds it and then sells all he has to go buy the treasure in the field. Um, which that means like there's something you discover. Have you ever discovered something and it's like, oh, this realization about how good God is or, and you're like, that's what I want to give everything for. Maybe you read something or maybe you uh, are inspired by someone else and you're like, that's it. I, I wanted, that's a dying to all these other things that I've built my life around because I want more of that. And you've experienced that. I know you have. Otherwise, you wouldn't keep dragging yourself to church on a Sunday morning, right? I don't think you're here to win gold stars. Uh, hopefully you're not. I'll give you some, though, if you really want some. I'll give you as many as you want. Jesus tells a story about a wedding where all these really interesting and important people were invited but they all had excuses for why they, didn't, why they couldn't come. And they were all really good excuses. One of them just got married. They're on their honeymoon. Hey, I'm on my honeymoon. I can't come to the party. And so the story goes, uh, the, the party uh, planner tells Jesus, or tells the people, just go out, in the, go out in the streets and just get, you know, get the street people in here. And he tell you, that party must have been raucous. I know it's a parable, but imagine that party. Like, the bartenders would be running out of supplies at that party. Uh, so don't be surprised when your big, bold, out loud gospel message is rejected. But when your invisible, silent message to those who are oppressed brings tears to the eyes of someone. And when I say oppressed, lots of us are oppressed. I don't just mean people who um, maybe immediately comes to your mind. So the church is desperately dependent on Jesus as their source of life, hope, and righteousness. We are the called out ones together, all of us everywhere, empowered by the Spirit to embody the gospel to the world. And we're in a state of conflict. And then Jesus says the keys of the kingdom are given to the church to bind and loose. Now, um, Eric, I can say this because your family's on here. You just have a, a daughter that 
learned how to drive, right? And I was at your house, and you guys have a used car that you gave her. And at one point, there was this, right? What am I doing? I'm Eric. (laughs) Giving you the keys, not to the kingdom, just to the Toyota Corolla, 2006. Um, Now, that's, that's quite a bit of authority that you just got given to drive a 2006 Toyota Corolla. 99, sorry. There might have been some mixed motives in saying that. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. 1999. It's a good year. It's a good year. Um, what does it mean that, this is an all-play question, what does it mean that Jesus gives us, his ragtag, not-so-beautiful followers of Jesus, the authority to represent the kingdom to the world? What does that mean? Believes in us. Thanks, Greg. Trusts us, Bob. Sees us as more than non-beautiful. Thanks, Greg. Ah, thank you. It doesn't have to be perfect to be successful. And he believes that's what works. Thanks, Steve. This non-perfect, non-beautiful. Oh, thanks, Isaac. He sees that we are his creation. And this is a beautiful plan, he says. I'm joyfully giving you the keys of the kingdom so you can represent me to the world. Now go do it. In all your mixed motives, non-beautiful way, it's going to be incredible. And every time you fail, it'll just be another reminder that you're not the Christ, I'm the Christ. I mean, Jesus is the Christ, right? (laughs) Speaking for. Thank you. It's Joe. That's scary. That's vulnerable. But church, let's not shy away from that. Amen? We can embody the gospel to the world. We can be in Christ for the world. Amen? Not so much in the world for Christ, but in Christ for the world. We can do small acts of love, mercy. We can get around the table with people. Even though it's hard, and it is, but then we get done with that, and that's so much better. The feeling is so much better than that feeling you get after firing off a really clever retort on faith. Yeah, it feels good for like a half a second, and then you're like, who have I become? I am Gollum. We are the church of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Christ. We've been given the keys of the kingdom to embody the gospel in the world. Let's go do that. Amen?